All systems are online and nominal for MechWarrior this week on the Upper Memory Block Podcast. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity or do you die here? Hey there, everyone. Joe here with lucky episode 13 of the Upper Memory Block podcast. I got a really big show, a really full show for you today. So, uh, you know, instead of prattling on about my life, not much to say aside from the fact that uh, it seems like summer's over and it's starting to cool down, though it's pretty warm right now. But uh, aside from that, we will jump right into things. Uh, I don't really want to do much in the way of news this week because uh, the main topic's so full. So uh, I'm just going to say one thing with regard to, uh, with regard to I guess, some personal news. All I really want you guys to know about is that last weekend, I guest hosted Treks in Sci-Fi episode number 401, where I talked about the two 90s Star Trek adventure games, Star Trek 25th Anniversary and Star Trek Judgment Rights. I focus a bit more on the story and less on technical matters than I would on, on if I were doing them on this show, but it's definitely an interesting chat. I play a lot of clips and stuff like that. So it's really cool. I do plan on covering them uh, here in the future, but until then, you can go listen to a bonus helping of me, if you want, talking uh, old PC gaming over at treksinsci-fi.com. I'll put the link to that right in the show notes. Uh, I also posted it up on the show blog, the Facebook group, a whole bunch of other places. But uh, if you don't check any of those, you're just uh, a pure listener, head over to treksinsci-fi.com, episode 401. You can listen to me prattle on some more about old gaming, and uh, I do really recommend that podcast in general. It's 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 a great podcast, one of the granddaddy podcasts, just hit its seventh year anniversary. So please, if you're not, I know a lot of you are Treks and Sci-Fi fans, but uh, if you're not and you like Sci-Fi, Star Trek, all that stuff in any way, I would really recommend you go and check it out. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for Okay, on to the main event right away, the Mech Warrior series. This is a big one for me, as I am a huge fan of the Battletech universe that this game series takes place in. So Mech Warrior is sort of a funny franchise, insofar as the first game in the series, entitled simply Mech Warrior, is often forgotten, and the sequel, Mech Warrior 2, is often considered the first game in the series. Uh, There's some reasoning behind this that I'll get into. Uh, I'll talk about both of them in some detail and cover the rest of the games in the series pretty quickly. Suffice it to say, the politics and ownership of the rights to this series is not entirely uh, straightforward. So, the original MechWarrior was released in 1989. It was developed by a company we've already chatted about before, Dynamics, and it was published by Activision. Uh, There's a total of six or seven games in the series, depending on how you count things, and there might even be a few more if you count things even more oddly. Enough ambiguity, let's get black and white talking about the genre. All the games in the MechWarrior series are considered vehicular combat simulations. Vehicular combat simulations place the player in command of a vehicle of some type. The vehicle is generally armed with weapons of various types. You're pitted against other vehicles in a variety of mission settings. Tasks may include one-on-one combat with other vehicles, defensive fixed positions, or escort, strikes at enemy installations, reconnaissance, or just all-out chaotic no-holds-barred combat. Uh, Like other combat simulation games we've talked about, like Wing Commander and Red Baron, vehicular combat games come in a wide range of, I guess we could call them, realism levels. Uh, They range from very simplistic arcade style up to more complex simulations where strategy, tactics, resource management, and combined arms all come into play. So that's kind of it. That's kind of a basic explanation of the genre. It's not really anything super new that we haven't seen before. It's just kind of a slight modification of, of... you know, a slight sub-genre of the simulation environment that we've seen in Wing Commander and Red Baron and, and all these other things. So let's get on to the next portion of the, of the show here, the story. So for the moment, I'm going to stay in kind of the realm of generality. To understand MechWarrior, you have to know a little bit about the universe that it exists in, and that is the universe of Battletech. 
Battletech, in its original form, is a tabletop game focusing on turn-based combat between huge, hulking war machines called Battlemechs. And here I'm going to talk a little bit about the universe in which those Battlemechs exist. So Battletech takes place in a region of space known as the Inner Sphere. Now, this isn't a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. The Inner Sphere consists of our actual kind of stellar neighborhood, and this was all made possible by a single piece of technology within that universe, the Kearney Fuchida Jump Drive. Theories as to how faster-than-light drive worked were proven in the year 2102, and in less than 150 years, humanity had reached out from Earth and populated thousands of planets in a rough thousand-light-year circle around our solar system. Of course, this rapid expansion caused quite a few political issues. The Terran Alliance, the central governing body on Earth, had more and more difficulty exerting political power over new colonies which were being established farther and farther away from the center. Eventually, the Terran Alliance decided it was impossible to rule from afar and allowed colonies to gain their independence and self-govern. Now, this quickly resulted in the formation of localized kingdoms which were formed and destroyed in small conflicts from one week to the next. Eventually, by the year 2350, only six major governments remained, ruling their territories in what was essentially a feudal system of government. Each of these six realms was ruled by an upper class, generally one or two major ruling families and, you know, some other lesser, kind of less noble families uh, underneath them. Each of these six governments remained relatively stable, but tensions between them were always high, and relations continuously got more and more contentious as the decades rolled along. However, since all these realms were basically equivalent in level of technology and war material, hostilities remained in check. It was kind of this interstellar cold war that they had kind of entered. That is, of course, until the year 2439. In this year, the Terran hegemony, which had replaced the Terran alliance as the central governing body on Earth and its surrounding central territory, had discovered something that would give them a major edge over the outlying realms, the Battlemech. The Inner Sphere had never seen a weapon as imposing and devastating as Battlemechs, imposing, armed to the teeth, and virtually unstoppable by conventional military forces. House Cameron, rulers of the Terran hegemony, took world after world with their new weapon. However, plans and schematics for their battle mech were soon captured and were quickly distributed, sold, stolen, or otherwise, you know, otherwise distributed, as I said, amongst, amongst the other houses. This led to another stalemate and a hundred-year period known as the Age of War. As war ravaged the inner sphere, House Cameron, who had started the whole thing in the first place, decided they had had enough. Over a 15-year period from 2556 to 2571, Ian Cameron, leader of the Terran hegemony, managed to sign agreements with all the other great houses, resulting in the formation of the Star League. The Star League would be led by House Cameron, with the five other grand families forming a ruling council. The goal of the Star League was to unite the inner sphere under a single banner and end interhouse conflict and also unite the militaries of the six great houses into a single Star League defense force, further known as the SLDF. Of course, Cameron wouldn't stop at simply unifying the six great houses under him. At the edges of the inner sphere were an area where small areas of space which together were known as the periphery. Around the periphery lay smaller independent states too far flung to worry the great houses. Cameron, however, wanted them under his thumb. He attempted some kind of very paltry negotiations, but you know, quickly moved to bring in the Star League Defense Force to annex these periphery states. And you know, despite the fact that both the brass of the Star League Defense Force and Cameron himself thought that these small periphery states would fall very quickly, this developed into a war known as the Reunification War, which lasted 20 years. So after the reunification war ended and the Star League was kind of united as one, the whole inner sphere was united under the Star League, for the next 200 years, the Star League endured and relative peace reigned. Science and technology bloomed with huge advances in mech and warship technology, in addition to the development of faster-than-light communications in the form of hyperpulse generators. This golden era would not, of course, last forever. 
In 2767, the bulk of the Star League Defense Force was away in the periphery dealing with a series of rebellions. Uh, during this time, Stefan Aramis, who was the leader of the Rimworld's Republic, assassinated the entire Cameron family and declared himself new First Lord of the Star League. General Alexander Kerensky, Supreme Commander of the Star League Defense Force, quickly regrouped his forces and drove for Terra. Thus began a 13-year war against Aramis's forces to retake the Star League, which culminated in the retaking of Earth. Despite his great victory, Kerensky saw his forces battered, bloodied, and horribly depleted after 13 years of bloody conflict. He came to the realization that the only thing that had been holding the Great Houses together was the threat of the SLDF, whose soldiers were intensely loyal to the Star League and to Kerensky himself. He realized he and his successors were fighting a never-ending, unwinnable struggle to keep the states in check. In its current battered form, it would be impossible to stop them from fighting amongst themselves. So Kerensky decided to take drastic action. He could not ask his soldiers to suffer more than they already had. He gathered his massive fleet, all his technology, engineers, scientists, and all of their families and abandoned the inner sphere for the deep periphery, where they would establish a new society based on honor and justice. They would not be heard of again for 300 years. With the steadying influence and threat of the SLDF gone, the great houses went at it. They all gobbled up as much territory as they could of the now leaderless Terran hegemony, and uh, this led to a series of three succession wars. The first war lasted 35 years, killing billions and destroying infrastructure to the point that the Inner Sphere experienced a general technological regression from the days of the Star League. With all the death and the huge brain drain that occurred during the SLDF's exodus, there was no way to recover the lost technology. After less than a decade of uneasy peace, the second succession war was begun and lasted another 34 years, further destroying the now irreplaceable Star League technology. After a mere two more years of peace, the Third Succession War began, lasting an unimaginable 150 years. It is near the end of the Third Succession War where we find ourselves at the beginning of the 1989 Dynamics game, MechWarrior. MechWarrior's storyline focuses on a single MechWarrior by the name of Gideon Braver Vandenberg. The year is 3024. Unknown attackers have attacked your home planet of Anders Moon and killed your family, leaving you as the prime suspect. Forced into exile, you start your life as a mercenary, fighting for the highest paying houses to make some cash while searching for clues as to who murdered your family. You have only five years to prove that you are innocent and that you're the rightful heir to Anders Moon. You are listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. So this brings us to the gameplay of 1989's MechWarrior. MechWarrior itself is a very unique game when compared to the follow-on games in the series in as much as it is substantially more complex in game mechanics. So you, as Gideon, start out with a bit of money and a single light battle mech called a Jenner. Unlike every other game that followed it, MechWarrior is a fairly open-world game. Well, the goal of the game is to follow the story missions, hopping planet to planet, finding clues to clear your name, and eventually reclaim your position as ruler of your planet, you're also free to ignore the main storyline if you don't want to follow it, if you just want to have a good time and, and, and play around and fight. So you're faced with a fairly large and detailed map of the inner sphere, and as a lone mercenary and eventually mercenary commander, you can decide where to go, which great houses to enter contracts with, which crew to hire, what mechs to buy, where to buy them, and much more. This game even had a fairly simple economy. If you wanted to make some money, you could buy mechs for cheap in systems that had mech factories and jump them out to far-flung areas and sell them for a profit. The same goes for equipment. Of course, if you are out in the boonies and you sell off all your equipment, then you may lack certain items required to repair and rearm your forces, so there is kind of a balance to strike there, which does take some degree of, of kind of financial economic strategy. In addition, the great houses that you negotiate for jobs with are not always trustworthy. Some will try to lowball you on contracts, but at the very least, they'll be honest in their description of the missions. 
others will pay high but potentially misstate the conditions of your mission. As an example, your contract could state that you'll be defending a facility from two enemy light mechs. However, what really shows up when you actually drop into the mission is a group of two medium mechs and maybe even one heavy mech, which can be quite a challenge if you've arrayed your forces to take on two lighter mechs. Missions are randomly generated, aside from the storyline missions, and, uh, and they can get a bit repetitive you know, from, from one play to the next. The game had a total of eight mech chassis available, and each had its own strengths and weaknesses. You had the option of creating a unit of up to four mechs, and it was in your best interest to array your forces in a pretty balanced manner. In a mission, you were dropped into the cockpit of your selected mech and are required to lead your unit to accomplish the mission objective. The combat rules follow pretty closely to the tabletop game. You could disable different parts of enemy mechs causing relevant damage, so if you blew off a leg, the mech would fall over. If you blew off an arm, the weapons in it would no longer be available. Rates of fire for each mech were limited by the amount of heat generated by their weapons versus the amount of heat dissipated by the heat sinks. I won't get into too much detail about combat since I want to talk about that more in, in, in a little bit. So between the RPG adventure story elements, uh, the economic interactions, and the combat simulation features, this game really does try to do a this game really does try to do a lot, and it does do a lot fairly well. Uh, the storyline element is certainly pretty thin, but the combat and the business portions of the game really do make up for it. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for... So that's just a really quick overview of gameplay in, of the original MechWarrior, and now we'll talk a little bit about the technology of that original game. MechWarrior started what became a hallmark of the rest of the games of this series. Uh, you know, this game featured very impressive graphics for the time, 320 by 200, 16 color EGA graphics. During missions, enemy mechs are shown as flat shaded 3D models, which, while very low res and very low poly polygon count, are detailed enough so that you can really tell which model of mech you're shooting at. Uh, terrain consists of simple shapes to define major features, like a large pyramid for a hill, and things like that. Uh, surprisingly, even though it required a mere 286 with 640k of RAM, the game ran quite quickly since by keeping things simple, it had the power to spare to animate multiple mechs on the screen at once, so you very rarely experienced any slowdown even when there was a lot of action on the screen because models were really just not very complex. Now, this isn't to say that the game didn't have its technical issues. Now, there was virtually no music and no sound to be heard aside from some PC speaker bleeping and a single music track in one portion of the between mission interface. Also, enemy AI in this game was somewhat lacking. Enemy mechs would always run full speed towards the largest threat, and this led to what was known as the Locust Defense. You would pilot the lightest mech in the game, the Locust, and place your lancemate in a heavier mech. All enemies would basically just ignore you and attack your heavier ally, and this would leave you alone to pick the enemy down from behind while basically remaining untouched as long as your ally remained alive. So that's the original game in a nutshell. Uh, it would take six years and much hardship, but a sequel would be made which would launch this franchise into fame. All right, Mech Warrior 2. This is the game that I really want to concentrate on for the bulk of the show. So, as we did with the original Mech Warrior, let's talk about the story of Mech Warrior 2. So, whereas the original Mech Warrior took place in 3024, Mech Warrior 2, 31st Century Combat, takes place in the year 3057. However, a major event in the Battletech universe has to be covered first. So, back in the year 3049, the inner sphere began to hear rumblings of mysterious invaders using highly advanced technology, greater than that even of the fabled Star League. Contact was lost with some smaller periphery states, and eventually the invaders hit the inner sphere itself, decimating the free Rasselhag Republic and cutting swaths through the Draconis Combine and Federated Commonwealth, occupying all the planets that they captured in their wake. It was eventually discovered that these invaders, calling themselves the clans, were in fact the warlike, genetically engineered, and strictly honor-bound descendants of General Kerensky's Star League Defense Force. Their goal was the restoration of the Star League 
and the destruction of the corrupt great houses that caused Kerensky and their ancestors to leave in the first place. Despite their seemingly unified and unstoppable appearance, the clans were in fact not united. Two schools of thought had developed in the clans over the 300 years that they were all isolated. The Wardens, consisting mainly of Clan Wolf, who are opposed to the invasion, and the Crusaders, consisting almost of pretty much almost all the other clans, but led by Clan Jade Falcon. The Crusaders are convinced it is their natural right to rule over the rabble of the Inner Sphere. The Crusader philosophy won out, and hence their decision before the invasion in 3048 to proceed and invade the Inner Sphere. What wasn't realized at the time by the Inner Sphere was that the ultimate goal of the four invading clans was a race towards Earth. The first clan to occupy Earth would be considered Ill Clan, or the Clan of Clans, to rule over all the other clans and the new Star League. This was learned by Precentor Marshal Anastasius Focht of Comstar. Since the fall of the Star League, Terra itself had been occupied by Comstar, which was a neutral, mystical, monk-like society that acted as a warden of technology and also managed and maintained the network of hyperpulse generators, which facilitated faster-than-light communications in the inner sphere. HPG arrays were declared off-limits as military targets, and Comstar maintained its own very well-trained force of Com guards to defend their facilities. Upon hearing the clan's goal was ultimately Earth, Focht, who was the head of the Com guards, suggested a proxy battle for Earth on the planet Tukayid. The Comguards would defend a pair of targets from each clan. If any of the clans won, Comstar would cede the planet to the winning clan. If not, the clans would be required to suspend their invasion for 15 years, thus giving the Inner Sphere time to repair and rearm against them. After a dirty month of fighting, Comstar won the day, and the clans were honor-bound to suspend their attacks. This was the year 3052. In the wake of this crushing defeat, Ulrich Kerensky, warlord over the clan invasion and staunch invasion-opposed warden, was charged with treason and accused of purposefully losing the battle. They claimed he engineered the defeat, and this would result in the genocide of the clans since they could no longer make war, which was their only reason for existing. Ulrich Kerensky refused to accept such an accusation and demanded a trial of refusal. He called upon his clan, Clan Wolf, to stand up and defend his position. They did so. The staunchest of the Crusader clans, the Jade Falcons, stood in opposition. This conflict became known as the Refusal War, and this is where the game begins. You choose your allegiance. Are you a member of Clan Jade Falcon, fighting to uphold the Council's decision to strip Ulrich Kerensky of his position and immediately resume the invasion? Or are you a mech warrior of Clan Wolf, pledged to defend Ulrich and weaken the Crusader clans to leave them too weak to threaten the Inner Sphere? So, as the gameplay section starts, this is where we are left. You are a raw cadet of the clan of your choosing. Aside from my explanation, a short intro cutscene for each faction gives you the lowdown. The stance of the Warden Clan Wolf is this. So that gives us a bit of an idea that, you know, the clan wolf, the wardens want to, you know, the last soul hope for the earth. They want to defend the earth. They want to help the inner sphere and, you know, not invade, not rule, not take over. 
Now, on the other hand, we have the Crusaders clan Jade Falcon, and they have this to say. to the heavens on the wings of the same. We remember with the clarity of Falcon's sight the words of Kerensky. Through the smoke of time he speaks to us, his chosen, and urges us onward with the promise of evil. We will retake what is ours by right, that shining jewel terror. Not the vastness of space, nor the wolf's obstinate howl will stay us from our righteous goal. We are crusaders and will trample all who stand in our way. So MechWarrior 2 eschews the do-everything gameplay style of the original MechWarrior. It drops the RPG elements and the economic portions of the game and focuses solely on the mech combat aspect of things. So the first thing you'll want to do is run the training missions. These give you a good basic overview of how to pilot, navigate, use sensors, and fight your mech. Then, on to the campaign. Each mission briefing provides a wealth of information, including details about your goals and objectives, and a very detailed narrative of the current state of the refusal war. Some of these situation reports are in the form of traditional narrative fiction, others are in the form of reports and message intercepts, and they're really quite rich and detailed, and they really, really do bear reading between missions, because they really do fill things in for you as to the state of things and the background story of, of the Battletech universe. So from the mission briefing, you have access to the Mech Lab, where you have the option to select and customize your mech. Each mission provides a default mech chassis and weapons loadout. Now you have the option of modifying both the chassis up to a maximum allowable weight class for the mission and the actual weapons loadout of the mech itself. This is total departure from the original game where you had access to the eight mechs and they were all of fixed configuration. You get a bonus for the additional challenge of selecting a lighter mech than the maximum of what's allowed. So the lighter you go, the more bonus points you get on your final mission uh, evaluation. So as I said, the Mech Lab is really one of the great gameplay enhancements of MechWarrior 2. The original game provided you with those eight non-editable mechs. MechWarrior 2 provides the player with 18 mechs that are fully customizable with anything from weapons loadouts to more armor to engine size. It really does create some great opportunities for replayability since modifying weapons loadouts or just trying things with different mechs is really, really quite fun. Each mech has different handling characteristics and style of play. Lighter mechs are better suited to hit and run attacks, whereas huge 100-ton assault mechs can lumber in straight and just absorb damage. So once you've selected your mech, you drop into the mission. Each mission starts with you deploying to a planet and your mech starting up, and a typical mission sounds kind of like this right at the beginning. Planet. Wotan. Ambient temperature 02.64 degrees. Local time is 23.45.12 GST. All systems nominal. So once that happens, you have to complete your mission objectives as they were outlined in your briefing. Missions have mandatory primary objectives, you know, such as destroying an enemy installation or you know patrolling all the nav points or something like that. They also have secondary objectives, such as destroying all enemy forces on the map, and so on, down to bonus objectives, which usually consist of destroying targets of opportunity. Targets of opportunity can be anything from a small, out-of-the-way, isolated um, you know, enemy installation. One mission, I remember taking out uh, an enemy dropship, which takes quite a while because they're very heavily armored and armed, and other things like that. So only the primary objectives are mandatory. All others as I said before, give you additional points on your evaluation. Fighting your mech is a constant balance of attacking enemies, staying out of their line of fire, and managing your mech's heat levels. All weapons fire generates heat, which is then dissipated by your mech's heat sinks. Fire too much or too often, and your heat level will reach critical. 
The mech will attempt to auto-shut down to shed its heat in a hurry. If you're in a safe enough place, it is a good way to very quickly dump heat and keep going. However, it's unlikely you'd be firing your weapons if there wasn't an enemy around, so you do have the option of overriding the shutdown. Uh, Generally, if you slow your rate of fire or switch from firing laser-based weapons to a ballistic weapon like an autocannon, or switch from maybe firing a large laser to a small laser, your heat sinks will be able to shed some of your excess heat. Heat level critical. Shutdown sequence initiated. Shutdown sequence overridden. If you don't shed heat and you just keep on firing, your mech will start to feel the effects. Systems will become damaged and any internal ammo, such as missile magazines or things like that, may explode, causing major internal damage to your mech. You may not die right away, but uh, you're going to lose a big chunk of your mech and a big chunk of your weapons. The surrounding environment also has an effect on your heat management. If you're in the middle of a desert, you'll gain heat much more quickly. If you're on an airless moon or an ice field, you'll dissipate heat much quicker. If there's a body of water around, you can step into that, which will also increase your heat efficiency. Heat management in this game is no joke. I'm talking about it this much because it's something you constantly have to think about. So using your weapons, reaching your nav points, defeating enemies, and achieving your objectives allow you to complete missions and proceed through the refusal war. You start out life as a cadet, but through the 16 missions, for a total of 32 missions on each side, you're offered the chance to engage in what are known as trials of position which are competitions for higher rank. Gaining rank allows you to command more mechs in your missions, which certainly does come in handy later on in the game. Each trial allows you to gain two ranks. If you complete all the trials of position successfully, you can attain the rank of Khan, the leader of the clan, not Khan, the guy from Star Trek II. MechWarrior 2 didn't feature multiplayer out of the box. However, an add-on program called NetMech shipped eight months after the game hit the shelves. It was made available to the public via a free download or also via an inexpensive boxed CD-ROM. It featured various types of multiplayer gameplay and supported up to eight players via IPX dial-up modem or null modem, and it came included with uh, 12 multiplayer maps. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for... This game series and this week is so special that you get two tech focuses. So like the first game, MechWarrior 2 pushed the boundaries of technology. Its various editions featured 256 color graphics ranging from standard VGA resolution all the way up to a very respectable 1024 by 768 in the Windows 95 version that released only one year after the DOS version in 1996. The mid-90s were also a time of fledgling dedicated 3D graphics cards. Now, I bought the original DOS software rendered version of MechWarrior 2 in 1995, but I'm pretty sure I ended up with at least three copies of it total over the years. Around 1996, I got an original Pentium that had an ATI 3D Rage card in it, which in and of itself was barely a 3D card at all. Uh, It came with a free copy of MechWarrior 2 3D Rage Edition. When I upgraded the 3D Rage card a few years later to a Voodoo 1, I ended up with a copy of MechWarrior 2 3DFX Edition. These enhanced editions featured some rudimentary effects and higher resolution than, uh, you know, higher resolution graphics and higher resolution textures that did actually look quite impressive for the time. The graphics really are one of the main reason that MechWarrior 2 sticks in my memory. The other technical reason MechWarrior 2 is incredibly unique is the soundtrack. Composed by Gregory Alper and Ji-Hun Huang, The Mech 2 soundtrack is hailed as one of the greatest game soundtracks of all time. While the interstitial music you experience between mission segments are the standard kind of midi fare, once you enter missions themselves, the music really shines. The in-mission soundtrack was full quality CD audio with a very incredible range of epic music tracks tailored to each mission. There were a total of 26 tracks on the original DOS CD. 
All the tracks were some flavor of electronica, but most of them also had very classical influences, from classical strings to horns, and some tracks were just very eerie, some were quite rocking, and, and you know, they were just really great. One of my personal favorites is track 5, named Thrill of the Hunt, from the mission codenamed Plum Wine. It starts with really dramatic strings and moves into an epic martial kind of thing. It's a track I played right at the beginning of this section just to kick it off. Now, the best thing about the MechWarrior 2 soundtrack is that if you owned the game, you owned the soundtrack. The tracks were encoded in standard CD audio format, so all you had to do was drop the game disc into your CD player and you could listen to it anywhere. Just make sure to skip track one. <laughs> track one was the track where the game's, uh, the game's game data was stored. If your CD player wasn't very advanced and didn't try and do any detection to see if it was reading an audio track, it would try and play its interpretation of the game's data files which tended to result in a loud static kind of either blowing out your ears or blowing out your speakers. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for... Okay, time for the development story. Now, I couldn't find a ton on the original MechWarrior game itself, so I'm going to concentrate a bit more on MechWarrior 2, but I think overall this is a very interesting story that definitely bears some telling. So if any game series has a tumultuous history with regard to its development, it is most definitely the MechWarrior franchise. Every numbered sequel in the game was created by a different development team, and most of the main competitors to the MechWarrior series were games that were created by members of the former development teams. So let's begin at the beginning. While there were other officially licensed PC games in the Battletech universe, uh, the main one of which being was uh, released by Infocom in 1988, the first game to hold the title MechWarrior was the one I originally talked about on this show, the 1989 game MechWarrior. This game was developed by Dynamics and published by Activision. Now, unlike the other Infocom Battletech games, which was more of kind of an RPG adventure game with mech piloting added on, MechWarrior would do the opposite. They would focus on mech piloting with a sideline RPG and economic uh, aspect attached to it. The team of Dynamics uh, released a very good game that did a lot of things right. However, by the game's release in 1989, things at Dynamics were not doing well. Uh, if you remember back in the Red Baron episode, 89 was about the time Dynamics was on the verge of going under. Only the 1990 acquisition by Sierra say, saved their skins. Of course, being that Activision held the rights to MechWarrior meant that Dynamics, which was now a part of Sierra, couldn't work on the next game. Dynamics didn't drop out of the big robot fight, though. They went on to create Metal Tech Earth Siege along with Faza, who are the original creators of the Battletech tabletop game. Earth Siege was a starting, startlingly similar game in gameplay style to, uh, to MechWarrior, and it was a very fun and very good game in its own right. I quite enjoyed it. Uh, I'm pretty sure that series will get a podcast on its own. In fact, Earth Siege even beat MechWarrior 2 to the shelves by a year. An interesting side note about the Earth Siege series, which I'm sure, again, I will mention in a podcast dedicated to it, is that it is actually the genesis of what would eventually become the very, very popular Tribes series of games. So, Earth Siege aside, Dynamics was out of the, the, uh, the MechWarrior game. In 1991, a new small development team was assembled in-house at Activision and given the source code to the original MechWarrior and basically told to create a sequel. So, as we've seen over and over again in this podcast... Uh, a game's original design can differ very, very greatly from its, uh, its finished product. MechWarrior 2 is probably the poster child for this. The game that would be named MechWarrior 2 31st Century Combat started off life called MechWarrior 2 The Clans. So MechWarrior 2 The Clans was set to be released in 1993, but by the time 1992 rolled around, development had barely started on it. By December 16, 1993, all that had been released were two small demos. Based on those, it was quite obvious that there was still a lot of work to be done. Graphically, the game looked like a low-res, kind of stripped-down version of uh, the final game, featuring the mechs from the, the eight mechs from the original MechWarrior game. There was no concept of weapons grouping, and the mechs moved around very, very quickly, and they were very bouncy, 
So if they hit an obstacle, instead of coming to a hard stop, they would actually bounce backwards. Cockpits in the clans were 3D modeled like they are in the final release. However, instead of having data displays hovering in your view, which kind of makes sense since in the Battletech universe, mech warriors wore these things called Nero helmets, which would kind of project their, uh, their head-up display kind of over their faces. The cockpits had flat-screen displays. The game would feature a career mode like the release version would, but it gave you the option of six different clans. Wolf, Jade Falcon, Smoke Jaguar, Nova Cat, Ghost Bear, and Steel Viper. Multiplayer would be available via modem and direct connect and would allow up to eight players. So from here, things kind of continued to degenerate. The game was coming along, the mech models were improving, textures were added, the game's shell was coming together, and all this stuff. So this sounds pretty good. However, Activision's marketing department kept pushing the game as much more complete than it was. Promotional material was even being sent. You know, empty promo boxes were being sent to game stores, commercials were happening, magazine ads were running, and all this hype was being built. However, all the development team really had, even at this point where they were saying, this game is done, we're going to sell it soon, was kind of a really nice tech demo. The game lacked focus, the team didn't have any real leadership, and the members were honestly getting really, really discouraged. By 1994, pretty much the entire original dev team formed back in 91 had left Activision of their own accord. This turnover really hurt productivity and really hurt morale, which caused even further delays. In fact, only one member of the original team even got credited on the final game. His name was Eric Peterson. He had built the basis and the core of the WarThink game engine, without which the game would have just totally failed. So at the same time, with the team in shambles and morale at an all-time low, Activision Brass decided, you know, it might be time to pull the plug on this project. Tim Morton, who was the sole programmer remaining on the game, convinced management to give him a little bit more time and a few more resources to pull MechWarrior 2 out of its hole. So, along with him, we have Josh Resnick, who was assigned to the project as a producer. At the time, he actually thought that being transferred to the Ealing project was a demotion and wondered who he had offended in upper management. In addition to him, John Spinale was, uh, was assigned as director. The first thing the new team realized was they had something okay. It was basically a decent-looking sim with a random mission generator. They ended up coming up with two major goals for the revived project. So firstly, they needed to make the game as realistic as possible. It needed to be in full 3D. It needed to have lighting, shading, textures, and everything had to be advanced as they could possibly create them to be. They needed to have a much more immersive experience than not only they had previously provided in the previous game, but they needed to have a more exper immersive experience than, create, than existed in the market at all. Secondly, they needed a story. They dropped the random mission generator and the six clans in favor of a series of scripted missions complete with pre and post story treatments split between a mere two factions. Zachary Norman is credited as the writer, and personally, as an aficionado of Battletech fiction, I can attest to his doing quite a good job, despite the fact that these games are not actually officially entered into the Battletech canon. So, despite all these issues, all these roadblocks, the threat of cancellation, MechWarrior 2 finally released in 1995, four years after the development had begun, and it was worth the wait. The game was revolutionary. Technology-wise, gameplay-wise, everything about it was great. The game engine might be held together with spit and bubblegum, which was kind of the prevailing rumor at the time, but it did not matter. Multiplayer was intended to release with the game, but that portion wasn't ready in time. It released shortly thereafter as the NetMech package, as, as I said kind of uh, a little while ago. So still later in 1995, uh, an expansion called MechWarrior 2 Ghost Bear's Legacy was released. This allowed the player to play as Clan Ghost Bear, which uh, gave you access to 14 new battle mechs, a couple of new weapons, 12 new missions, and uh, these missions took place in a variety of different environments like space and underwater. On top of all this, new CD tracks were added, which are just as great as the originals. So finally, in 1996, MechWarrior 2 Mercenaries was released. This was considered a standalone add-on to MechWarrior 2. It used a slightly upgraded version of the game engine, a completely new heavy metal score was created, and this game reintroduced an optional simple economy mode as its kind of premise is that you take command of your own inner sphere mercenary unit. Technically, this game is a prequel as it covers the time period from 3044 to 3052, and you do get to experience the clan invasion from 3050 on from the inner sphere's point of view. 
Mercenaries is a very cool game in and of itself, and while it wasn't the last MechWarrior game, it was the last one developed by Activision. MechWarrior 3 and 4 would be developed and published by different studios. So, aside from the fact that I truly love this game franchise and uh, this entire universe in general, there was another reason I decided to cover MechWarrior right now, and that's because the MechWarrior series has re-entered the limelight as of late. A new MechWarrior game is currently in closed beta and is called MechWarrior Online. It's being developed by Piranha Games and published by Infinite Game Publishing. Based on the published game videos and, and the fact that I'm in the beta, even though I'm not supposed to say that... Uh, this game is beautiful. It runs on the Cry. It runs on Cry Engine 3, the same engine powering Crisis 3. Uh, it appears to be as fast-paced and as action-packed as MechWarrior 2, and uh, you know the amazing graphics really make you feel like you're piloting a huge 100-ton assault mech or a small quick scout. I'm looking forward to this game a lot, and you can find more info on it at mwomercs.com. If you're interested in getting into the closed beta, you can purchase a Founders package for between $30 and $120, which will get you instant access. So with MechWarrior Online in mind, where can we get the older MechWarrior games today? Well, sadly, there doesn't appear to be a legal digital way to get any of the Activision MechWarrior games. A quick check on Amazon shows that there are quite a few copies available, ranging in price from $5 to over $100. So if you'd like to get it that way, it's certainly available. Of course, there are less above-board ways to get the games, and again, I leave it to you. Uh, if you want to try these games out for the first time, or if you owned them in the past and you just don't have the discs anymore, then, you know, frankly, I don't see the harm in, torrent in, in, in torrenting them, provided there's no legal way to buy them new anymore. Now, a good set to try and get your hands on is MechWarrior 2 The Titanium Trilogy. Uh, you know, this compilation combines MechWarrior 2, the Ghost Bear expansion, and Mercenaries in one set that was optimized for Windows 95. Now, this pack and even the old DOS versions and stuff might have some issues running on your modern machines, but fear not, the MechWarrior 2 fan community has developed a source port to get any of the Activision games working easily. In fact, any version of any of the Activision games working pretty easily. It's called MechVM, and it can be found at mechvm.org. So all you do is copy you know install mechvm and uh, drop your cd into the uh, into the, your your cd and or dvd and or blu-ray reader and uh, open up mechvm and install it via uh, mechvm's one click interface and boom you are playing mech warrior no fuss no muss hi this is chris and this is rick and we're the hosts of the ragtag Fugitive Podcast. We're celebrating the original Battlestar Galactica series, and we're doing that by uh, watching an episode in total and commenting on it as it runs. And you know what's really fun about it is we're attempting to bring guest hosts in with us so that we can talk kind of like that mystery science theater kind of thing. And we sometimes we make a little fun of the episode, and sometimes we talk about how cool it is, so you just never know what you're going to get when you listen. Yes. So come and join us. We're on iTunes. You can find us by searching for Ragtag Fusion Podcast, and we're on the Stitcher Radio Network. You also can visit our cool website and make comments and have fun looking around in the officer's lounge and all that jazz by going to Ragtag Fugitive Podcast. You have our word as a warrior. Word as a warrior? Plank down your cubits and come on over. And let's play a game of Pyramid. The Ragtag Fugitive Podcast. By your command. All right, so this week, hooray, I got a voicemail from Mark, who talks a little bit about his experiences with some of the later games in the MechWarrior and Battletech universes. So take it away, Mark. Hey Joe and everybody, listen to the Upper Memory Blog podcast. Uh, it's Mark, and I just wanted to write in and leave an audio comment for Joe and you guys about uh, the Mech Warrior series. Um, I've been playing Mech Warrior since probably middle school or high school, probably like 10 or 15 years now. My first exposure was when my friend Justin lent me the Mech Warrior 3 disc, and then I just got so enthralled with it, I never got around to returning it to him. It wasn't until a while later that I got Mech Warrior 4, and I just never really got into it the same way. I really liked MechWarrior 3 because you could use the mouse to aim the reticle, whereas in MechWarrior 4 you had to use the joystick and it would turn the whole torso of the mech, so it was a lot harder to control it. 
there might have been a way to change it, but I never really got into it. I played a little bit more MechWarrior 4 once I finally got the joystick set up more the way I liked, but it just n didn't have the same feel as MechWarrior 3. When I finally got an Xbox in high school, I was really excited to get Mech Assault and play Mech Assault Online on Xbox Live. And it was really cool back then because DLC was free, they didn't charge you nickel and dime you five bucks, ten bucks, you know, for new mechs, new maps, and new game modes and stuff like that. It wasn't until late high school when one of my friends started going to a game and hobby store that his older brother worked at that I realized there was like Mech Warrior miniature games and tabletop games and stuff like that. And it wasn't just like a Mech Warrior franchise, it was the whole Battletech franchise. And I like instantly fell in love with the minis, the Mech Warrior Dark Age series. The thing I really liked about the Mech Warrior Dark Age miniatures was that they came painted and they had a lot of detail to them. You didn't have to paint them like classic Battletech. The rule set was pretty cut and dry. There was no hexes because at that time I didn't really like hexes. I thought it was kind of cool that you could just play it on any surface measuring. You know, you could grab a couple books or like a cup or something or you know, whatever you had lying around. You could grab some Legos and make your own terrain. They had different rules for the different terrain, where if you stood in water, it would cool you down faster, and if you were shooting through trees, it would, you would have to. It'd be tougher to hit enemies on the other side in buildings and stuff like that. You could do indirect fire for them, and it was just just a cool system. I still have all my mechs. I mean, they're worthless now because the game ended. And uh, I all the pieces I have are from like the version 1.0, the the Dark Age. I stopped before they came out with the Age of Destruction series. At that point, when they came out with the Age of Destruction, you could customize your pilots. You could add gear and special abilities to your mechs, making it a little bit closer to classic BattleTech and Mech Warrior, where they had the Mech Lab. I tried to play a little bit of classic BattleTech. I bought the the starter kit and I tried to get my friends into it but I couldn't they just couldn't be bothered and you know it's the kind of game you need a lot of people to play and I was new to to tabletop games as it was so I couldn't wrap my head around the rules there's so many different modifiers in classic battletech you have to roll based on you know if you moved and how fast and then if you're the person you're targeting if they moved and how fast and it was just so much to wrap my head around, I couldn't figure it out, so I never got into it that much. I bought one of the MechWarrior Dark Age novels, and that was the only time I ever tried to really get into the story. I could just never really get into it. There's too many houses, and they're always warring and stuff like that. I'm sure Joe could all tell us more about that, because he seems to have read more of the books. Yeah, just too many, too much politicking for me to follow, especially where I was so much younger than... You know, I just wanted to see robots shoot each other and stuff like that. I mean, now that I've watched, like, Game of Thrones and stuff like that, I'm a little bit more into it. I don't know if I could go through that many books and stuff like that. In 2004, they came out with Mech Assault 2, and I loved that one. That one was even better than Mech Assault 1. You could hop out of your mech and get into the little clan armor, proto-armor type thing, and you could hack into other mechs. And you could fly the VTOL vertical takeoff and landing. And uh, if, if you could hook onto it with one of the little armors, the clan armors. And it was just really cool. It brought that combined arms feel of the Mech Warrior Dark Age game and classic Battletech into the more arcade action of Mech Assault 2. I even played the DS version of what was it, like Mech, Mech Assault Phantom War or something. And it actually played really well for a DS game. It represented the Xbox style of gameplay pretty well uh, and that one was really fun too. So that's kind of a hidden gem for you guys. I don't know, that game didn't get very much press. I just did a quick Wikipedia on it, uh, Mech Warrior Phantom War, and it was actually the last Mech Warrior game before the, the Mech Warrior Online that's about to come out. So Mech Warrior's basically been in hibernation for six years. If you had Crisis, the PC shooter game, there was a full conversion called MechWarrior Living Legends. And I think I tried to get it going once, but I never really got too into it. I can't really remember.
if I ever played it or not. The last PC iteration of the game was Living Legends that Mata just mentioned. So hopefully by the end of the year we'll have Mech Warrior Online out. You can get into the closed beta now, but you have to spend between thirty and one hundred twenty dollars. And I'm just not too big of a fan of the free-to-play genre right now. There's just so many free-to-play games. I don't really like to invest money into any of them because I can just bounce around between them. But Mech Warrior might be one that I want to sink some time and money into because um, usually there's an experience. Uh, booster that you usually get with the stupid free-to-play games that they you know it takes forever to grind up your levels if you don't buy the experience booster so maybe I'll buy into that it looks really good so far pretty faithful to how they used to play before I'm looking really forward to getting back into the cockpit of a new zeal um, the new zeal is definitely my favorite mech I just love the two huge PPCs it has on its arms and it's a medium mech so it can run around pretty quick. It's got jump jets if you want to get up on top on top of like a little hill or something like that. Or if you're on the other side of the hill you can just jump jet up and then shoot them real quick and then pop back down. You don't have to worry about ammo. You just have to worry about cooling. But like I said, mo in most iterations of Mech Warrior and Battletech, if you stand in some water you're pretty good for a little bit. I'd like to leave more feedback about some of the other shows you've done, but I mean I could talk for hours about all the games that you've covered. You know, I've played Loom, Descent, played Command and Conquer, Wolfenstein, you know, Star Trek Judgment Rights. I really like Star Trek Judgment Rights. I remember having a hard time getting it to play on my Windows 98 machine. I had the Collector's Edition. It came with a VHS copy of uh, City on the Edge of Forever. Which I thought it was kind of weird to put a VHS tape in with a PC game that wasn't really related. It's also supposed to be the best episode of, the, of TOS, so that's probably why they put it in there. I thought Loom was okay. I got it on Steam when it came in one of the bundles, the LucasArts bundle that they did. For adventure games, I really prefer the Indiana Jones in the Fate of Atlantis, or Full Throttle, or The Dig. They just had a lot more characters to interact with and I remember liking the puzzles more I remember the Indiana Jones one just like blew my mind it was so good just so exciting going down Atlantis I remember there was a portion where you could pilot the submarine and full throttle was cool because I like heavy metal and there's like tons of tattoos and bikers and it's just like an exciting science fiction world and it's got Mark Hamill doing the voice of one of the uh, one of the villains I think before you say it's not sci-fi, don't forget that it had floating cars and stuff like that. And The Dig was just another cool sci-fi adventure. You know, really smooth animations and stuff in that game, but The Dig was really hard. It took I think I had to cheat to, to beat that one. I'm hoping one day that you do a Grim Fandango show, because Grim Fandango is really great too. I mean, that one is like a movie. You could just, if you could just play, like hit play and not have, even have to play the game, that would be great. It, the story, I remember the story was so good and Glottis was so funny and just the way Manny interacts with all the characters and stuff like that. So many one-liners that those old LucasArts games are known for. I mean, I can't wait for the, um, the Double Fine Adventure to come out. I'm hoping it's more in the old-school vein of Tim Schafer games like, uh, like Grim Fandango and Full Throttle where he was really hitting his stride. So I'm glad I finally got around to leaving an audio comment. I've been meaning to do it for 13 episodes now, so I finally did it. So uh, hopefully I can do it more regularly. And I just want to thank you for doing what you do, Joe, because we all enjoy listening to it and commenting on your Facebook posts and stuff like that. keeps me busy when I'm at work. So uh, looking forward to the future episodes. See ya. Mark's a really great comment, and you know I'm I'm really happy that you were able to uh, to cover some of the, the later games, kind of in the in the Mech Warrior world. I know there's even more. There's the whole Mech Commander series, which isn't quite as you know simulationy. It's more kind of uh, tactical strategy kind of a thing where you're controlling a bunch of mechs and all that. So you know I like to start at the beginning of all these things, and then you know sadly I can't do a two or three hour podcast and cover all the games you know in in the series so so i'm happy you you have some memories of those and you're able to uh to share them 
with us with regard to those, you know, all those LucasArts games. I'm a huge, huge LucasArts fan, as you guys may have noticed. You know, my first episode was Sam and Max. I've done Loom, and uh, you know, I'm gonna keep peppering those those LucasArts adventures uh, across across the episodes. I, I really enjoyed Full Throttle, and I also truly enjoyed Grim Fandango. I think it was uh, a truly great, truly unique game. So we're definitely gonna have one on that. But uh, yeah, you know, over over time, all all these games will be covered, and and I hope that you and others will will send me your comments about that. A little word about the BattleTech universe is, you know, you're right. The, the BattleTech kind of expanded universe of novels and all that is very similar to the Star Wars uh, expanded universe. It's there's there's a lot of books and uh, it can be very complex. And actually, you know, MechWarrior Two, playing MechWarrior Two was the thing that actually got me really into BattleTech in the first place. And, you know, I didn't know much. And the reason I started reading these books was because I would read the, you know, the the pre-mission and aftermath kind of write-ups in MechWarrior 2, and I didn't quite understand what was going on. I didn't know what a lot of the terms meant. I didn't know what the planets were. I didn't know what the, you know, what the Free Rasselhig Republic was. I didn't know who the Federated Commonwealth was and all that. So that really did kind of jog me to say, hey, there's a Battletech book and I'll read it. And at first, I, you know, in 95, I was probably 14 years old, something like that. And, um... You know, I didn't. It took me some time to definitely uh, to get everything straight. And I think the first book, even the first couple of books I read through, I I didn't still didn't know what was going on very well. But uh, eventually, you figure it out, and and the universe is very very rich and very very full of of intrigue, and and a lot of it is is truly great. So, you know, if you do want to, I know a lot of the books are out of print. There's again, like with Mech Warrior Two, there's ways to get the books. I filled in my collection with uh with a quick torrent again i shouldn't say things like this because i'll get in trouble but uh you know doing this podcast actually kind of kicked me in the butt to go and and find the rest of the battletech books that i don't have and uh i've started reading i'm going back way back to some of the first ones from the late 80s and uh and yeah i'm i'm reading those you're listening to the upper memory block podcast so big question of the show, does MechWarrior hold up today? Well, I'm going to talk about MechWarrior 2 and all of its incarnations. Uh, I have a bit of an issue with 3D games that came out in the mid-90s, right at the beginning of the move from 2D into 3D gaming. Graphically, sadly, games of this era just don't hold up very well, at least in my opinion. You know, the models are very rudimentary, and even though this game was a breakthrough when it came out, if you don't have a love for the content in the world, it's quite possible that this game will not visually entertain you. Now, that's not to say the game doesn't run smoothly with fast-paced action and all of that, it just doesn't look as good as we're used to seeing these days, and it doesn't have the retro charm of 2D games of the era, you know, it just kind of looks rudimentary. It's kind of when you compare, you know, if I play Space Quest 1, in the kind of era of 2D gaming, it really does look quite dated. If you go, kind of go to MechWarrior 2, it's kind of the same thing in 3D gaming, where I find in kind of the early, you know, 1990, 1991, 1992, 2D games kind of took on this, the way we're used to them looking and the way we are happy with them looking. I'd say probably around 2004-ish would be the same thing that you could say around 3D games. If I go back to a game, 3D game from 2004, 2005, I don't feel quite so put off by it. But, uh, you know, all that said, is the game still fun? You are damn straight it is. Is the music incredible? It definitely is. So, you know, if you can get past Jaggy's low poly count and primitive textures, then you will still have a lot of fun with this game. Gameplay-wise, just like in Command & Conquer, MechWarrior 2 hit the nail on the head for big robot games. The mechanics make sense, the controls make sense, and... Again, I probably shouldn't say this, but MechWarrior Online has the exact same control scheme as MechWarrior 2 does. The game defined all of those to come after it. And the ones that kind of strayed from that, like Mark was saying about you know, MechWarrior 4, you know, they didn't do quite as well because they didn't fit the formula. And I know it's great to try and be innovative and different, but if something works, you know, why don't don't mess with it? So, you know, with with all those thoughts. In your head, I, I do understand why people think that this was the first MechWarrior game. The 1989 version of MechWarrior was kind of like the first pilot of Star Trek. It was good, the basic elements were there, but it just wasn't quite right. The uniforms were different, the captain wasn't right, and Spock smiled too much. MechWarrior 1989 was, you know, the cage to MechWarrior 2's Where No Man Has Gone Before, which kind of set the standard for everything to come after. 
As usual, though, I like to leave it up to you. This is my attempt at an impartial opinion, but if you like big robots and you like big guns, yeah, you should give this a go. So, you know, I guess that's that's that for another show. Thanks, Mark, so much for the voicemail, and thanks again to everyone for coming back week after week to listen to me talk about these old games. Next week, we go back to the Sierra Adventure Gaming Space with another one of my all-time favorites, Jane Jensen's Gabriel Knight series. These games are so much fun, and I know, once again, I will have a lot to say about them. So, as usual, if you have any thoughts, comments, or concerns, please send me an email or audio comment to podcast at umbcast.com. I also want to thank Rick Moyer for his great audio work. You can find him over at moyermultimedia.com, and you should go check out his new podcast, which, uh, you know, the promo that I played, the Ragtag Fugitive podcast, because, you know, it's coming out, I believe, next week, and uh, you really should give it a go. Uh, You can check out show notes for this show at umbcast.com. Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash umbcast. And follow the show on Twitter at twitter.com slash umbshow. And of course, me personally, if you want to hear inane ramblings about my personal life at twitter.com slash billybob476. Finally, you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or stream us live at Stitcher Radio. So that's that for another week. Thank you so much for coming, and we will see you in two weeks in the Upper Memory Block. Battle Control Terminated. You've been listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast with Joe Mastroianni. For more information on the podcast, visit umbcast.com. That's umbcast.com. Write to Joe today at podcast at umbcast.com. That's podcast at umbcast.com. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity or do you die here? Join.